Good morning, my name is Mark. If you don't know who I am, if you're a guest this morning, you clearly won't know who I am. Um, and by the time I've finished, I hope you get to know a little bit more about me. I tend to give myself away when I talk. It's free, by the way, and that's okay. This morning is part of um, the series that we're doing, Rooted. I'm going to be talking about what it means to be rooted in Scripture. And I want to really encourage you in the process to define your relationship with the Bible I have four Bibles on this table here. As you can see, a bit like Dave's robot, this version of the Bible is a little bit big to carry around. But I brought it this morning because on the 3rd of April in 1878, my great-great-great-grandfather gave this Bible to my great-grandmother on her first birthday. That's a long time ago, isn't it? And he wrote in it, and he said, Mary, I pray that this word will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. And I never met her. I don't know anything about her, and I wonder what her story was. But through the providence of God, this Bible and me got reconnected in the most amazing way. And it reminds me that the the thread of his faithfulness is woven through the generations in a way that we hardly understand. In In the film The Help... It says that sometimes courage skips a generation. In my case, faith did. But in becoming a Christian, it was a beautiful journey for me to reconnect with generations before me that believed in Jesus and believed in this book. And uh, I wanted to bring it this morning. The next one is my first Bible, my beloved New American Standard wide-margin single-column edition. Which is, if you look at Ephesians, there's more of my writing in the book of Ephesians than Paul's. Um, And then I have the one I use today, which is the iPad. But I also read a lot of my Bible on my iPhone. And this is just a metaphor, isn't it, for what's happened to us over the last hundred years or so. Abraham Lincoln said this, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the saviour of the world, is communicated to us through this book. Richard Dawkins, in his book The God Delusion, says this, The Bible is a chaotically cobbled together anthology of disjointed documents, composed, revised, translated, and then distorted by hundreds of anonymous authors, editors, and copyists unknown to us. The psalmist said, your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In To Kill a Mockingbird, Miss Mordy said, sometimes the Bible in the hand of one man is worse than a whiskey bottle in the hand of another. All different viewpoints and opinions on this book. And hopefully I'll say some things today that will help you navigate through what I think is quite a complex and challenging journey of what do we really think about the Bible 
and how do we describe and define our relationship with it? There are some Christians and leaders and well-known speakers who will say the Trinity is not Father, Son, and Holy Bible. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And with as much grace as I can muster, I would say to you that when they say that, they're in danger of falling into a ditch of their own digging. Because it's true to say the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But we must be very careful when we choose to demote or devalue the Word of God. And as I speak today, if I can do anything, it will be two things with the help of Holy Spirit, is elevate the precious nature and power of the Bible in your thinking. And then set a fire of desire off in your heart to engage with it in a way that you've never done before. Sam did a beautiful job last week of taking us on that journey of what it means to start our journey with Jesus. And he took us to Acts 2. And I want to take us back there just as a platform to springboard off into what it means to be rooted in Scripture. So if you've got a Bible of whatever form you've got it in, or you can choose to read it off the screen, I'm just going to take us to Acts 2.37 to verse 42 and recap some verses that Sam shared with us last week. Holy Spirit, I pray, help me to say what needs to be said and nothing else. And help us all to hear what it is that you want us to hear, Father, this morning about this precious, precious book. Amen. Acts 2.37 says this, When the people heard what Peter had preached, that's the this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And verse 42 says this, their response to all of that as they continued their journey was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. So that beautiful journey that Sarah kicked off two weeks ago and then Sam got us continuing on last week doesn't end with baptism. There's an ongoing process of being rooted in scripture, in communion, in prayer, and community. And I just want to focus in on that. What does it mean to be devoted to the apostles' teaching? You could use the word devotion and you could think about it as meaning rooted, really. So if you think about they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, another way of saying that was they rooted themselves in Scripture. Jesus in John 15, and these verses Sarah shared in 7 and 8, says this If you remain in me, And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This verse holds a real key, because Jesus said two things. He didn't just say, if my words remain in you. He said, if you remain in me. And one of the keys 
to handling this book properly is to understand that to interpret it correctly, you have to remain in him. Anyone who handles this book outside of relationship with the guy who wrote it is in trouble and will get you into trouble. So in John 15, there's a very simple key. Allow my words to remain in you. But whatever you do, remain in me. And some of the terrible things that this book is accused of doing are rooted in the hearts of people who have chosen to use it completely independently of any relationship with the person who wrote it. And we must avoid that ditch too. We must approach it understanding that when we read it, the incarnate word, Jesus, is meant to connect with the written word of Scripture in our hearts. And then that keeps us in a very safe place. Psalm 1, one of my favorite verses, I'll tell you why in a minute. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3, says this. I I read it in the New American Standard Version because it's the version I remembered it in. I memorized it when I was 18 in this version. And every time I read it in a different translation, I start end up speaking in tongues. (laughs) Because I get dislocated. (laughs) So let me just tell you what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who stands in the way of sinners, or sits in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree, firmly, firmly, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. His leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Now, the reason I know that verse so well is because when I went to university... I shared a room with another guy called Cedric. He's been to this church community. He wasn't a Christian when he shared a room with me. But in those days, I had a radio cassette alarm clock. Anybody need to explain what a cassette is? (laughs) I had this cassette called Biblical Confessions to Increase Your Faith by Larry Tomzak. And I used to wake up to it. (laughs) So sure enough, 7 o'clock every morning, or maybe a bit later... The alarm would go off, and Larry Tomzak would start quoting scripture at me, starting with this verse. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands in the way of sinners, who sits in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and all he meditates day and night. Three months later, Cedric got saved. <laughs> Wonderfully and radically saved. And I figure it was probably because I forced him to wake up to the Bible every day of his student life. I'm not sure it would work now as a tactic. I'm not even sure you're allowed to share room with students. It's probably against somebody's human rights to do that these days. But um, me and Cedric, in the sovereignty of God, found ourselves in a room which we shared. And um, he got born again into the kingdom of God because he woke up to the Bible every morning. Hilarious. The point of this is saying this. If you, the Bible is telling you, telling us that if we are rooted in the word of God... It's a key to fruitfulness in our lives. And that's really the sum total of this uh, message. Sarah and I had two grandchildren. Was it this year, last year? I get confused about when they came. But anyway, we got two grandchildren, Alexa and George. And when they were born, two things occurred to me really powerfully. It was a God moment in my life, and I'm still processing this. I thought to myself two things. One, Alexa and George and the rest when they arrive, will technology be your master or your slave? That was the first thing I thought. 
The second thing I thought was, what will you do with the Bible? Now, you're all looking at me as if I've got two heads, right? This is absolutely the truth. And I'm writing to them as we speak a letter for my grandchildren that will hopefully inform their journey in relation to technology and the Bible. I haven't got time to unpack. That might sound weird to you. If it does, come and grab me later, and I'll try and make you feel a bit more comfortable about why I think that. I guess I think it in simple terms because I think technology has the opportunity to wreck their lives royally if they don't make it its slave, their slave. It'll become their master. And secondly, without the Bible, we are lost. We have to be able to engage with the Bible in our generation. Every generation has to be able to do that. Otherwise, we're lost, my personal view. So in this room today, we have... I think at least four generational classes that I want to address just briefly. If you were born between 1946 and 64, you're what they called the baby boomers. If you were born in 65, like me, up until 80, you're in Generation X. 80 to 2001, you're Generation Y, who are the millennials. And after 2001, you're Generation Z. So I'm X, my kids are Y, and my grandchildren are Z. Now, I'm not saying these, these generational divides mean a huge amount, but I've been studying them for a while because I think I'm passionate about this book. But I also understand that each generation engages with this and thinks about this book very, very differently. Baby boomers, X, Y, and Z, you all will think about this book differently for a number of reasons. One is technology. And two is culture. There are others. I haven't got time to go into them. Culture, because culture, as we grow up, shapes the way we think and we feel about things. And technology, because technology is the opportunity to radically transform, and this is a picture of it, the way in which we engage with things. So if you think about the way technology has affected us, those four generational classes... I was born looking and reading from a book, Generation X. Generation Y probably started reading from a book, but very shortly found itself reading from a screen. Generation Z, if we're not careful, will not read a book. They will only read from a screen. I don't know if you, you might not, but I, this is supposed to be the Bible. It is about the Bible, honest, right? I'm just trying to... So there's a, there's a whole journey that X, Y, and Z's going on with regards to technology. I used to watch TV, four channels, when I was a kid. Black and white, it was tiny. Right? I mean, I had one. Generation Y grew up watching television, but actually switched to YouTube. And Generation Z will probably, television will become irrelevant because they'll watch it all off the internet. They'll watch YouTube for everything. So there's a massive shift I used to sit in church and listen to some person preaching from a pulpit, okay, Generation X. Y is we transformed it into a trendy platform. Z, if we're lucky, might get into a building, but more than likely they'll just podcast it because they think, why do I need to get out of bed when I can watch it off the internet? Huge shifts. When I was born again as a Christian, I was, I was, I was, I was instructed to read this book. Read it from cover to cover. Devour it. So I knew more about the book than I did about what other people thought about the book. 
Generation X. Are you with me? Generation Y probably knows more about what everybody else thinks about the Bible than they do about what they think about it. And by the time we get to Z, we're in real trouble because they've stopped reading it and they rely on a YouTube channel to tell them what it says. Run away. (laughs) I can't see you, but I'm hoping you're not looking as worried as you sound. Technology is, is capable of destroying the art of conversation. And it will if we let it. If it becomes our master, we will stop talking to each other. This book is itself a conversation that Jesus wants to have with you. And it's a conversation we're meant to have with each other. But technology has the opportunity to turn a conversation from dialogue into monologue. And all I'm doing is I'm listening to that person on the other end of the internet tell me what to think. And I have no ability to interact with them whatsoever. The Bereans are some of my favorite people in Acts 17. I love the Bereans. It says about the Bereans, right, that the Apostle Paul would come and teach. And they would search the scriptures to determine that what Paul was saying was true. And the Bible records that. I think that's hilarious, right? Can you imagine if the Apostle Paul somehow got catapulted into our church service and started talking to us? And we said, hang on a minute, Paul. I'm just going to go to my Bible and check to make sure that what you were saying is true, right? If the Bereans did that for the Apostle Paul who wrote, I forgot, it's in double digits, books of the Bible, right? How much more careful should we be about listening to what anybody has to say and not check it with the Bible that we are engaging with to make sure that what they're saying is true. If we don't do that, folks, then we are at the mercy of whatever Tom, Dick, or Harry chooses to tell us. Sorry, they were all men. Frida, Mary, and Josephine. (laughs) I made those names up, obviously. They're terrible. Well, no, sorry, they're probably great names. Um, I should should have scripted that one. But do you understand my point? If, if, if I don't engage with this book for myself and enter into a conversation with the guy who wrote it about what it really means, then any randomer can show up on my television, my c- computer screen, and tell me what to think. And I'm at the mercy of that. And the Bereans didn't even let Paul get away with that. So that was technology. Culture is another big one. So... There's this thing called postmodernism. I'm messing with your head now. Sorry, I'll go for your heart in a minute. I'll just drop my target slightly. But Generation X, Y, and Z have had to live through a wave of what's called postmodernism, right? Now you think, what does that mean? I'll just give you my simple, because I'm simple, definition of it. Postmodern means there's no big story. There is no big story that we're all a part of, one. Two, there is no absolute truth. And three, because of one and two, there's no hope. (laughs) Right? That's where postmodernism takes you. There's no big story, nothing is truth, and we're all lost and hopeless. Right? Can I just say, that's why postmodernism and the Bible are so at odds with each other. Because if this book is anything, it's a big story that we get to be a part of the moment we become a Christian. You don't just get a new future, you get a new past. 
I was grafted into a brand new history, the family history of which is contained in this book. So postmodernism, one nil to to Jesus, right? Because there is a big story and it's all wrapped up in this book. So you can take your postmodernism and you can sling your rock, right? Secondly, there is no absolute truth. Hmm. Hmm. Thy word, in the AV, your word is truth, Jesus said. There is absolute truth and it's wrapped up in this book. Now it has to be extracted carefully. Now it's two nil. Two nil to Jesus, right? Because postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. There is. And thirdly, there is hope. This book is filled with it. Filled with it. When I was, when I was broken mentally and was too scared to leave my bedroom and thought I'd never work again because I had a nervous breakdown, I prophesied Psalm 46 to myself. So it's in Psalm 46, just a bit further back. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. And I lay down in that river and I floated out of it because that river's Holy Spirit. And this book, reading it, gave me hope because it gave me a key, something I could hang on to until I had something else to hang on to. Because at that point in time, all I had was a verse. And that was all I wanted and actually all I needed. Because once you have a word from him, you have everything you need. Without it, I was lost and broken and hopeless. So we have to handle this postmodernist thinking that contaminates, and certainly Generation Y, millennials, I'm speaking to you now, postmodernism will contaminate your thinking towards many things, but particularly towards this book. Don't let it. It's toxic. You have to eradicate that thought that undermines the integrity of this book. If that wasn't bad enough, the Bible then gets shredded completely shredded by so-called textual criticism and science and worsely people who in the name of Jesus mishandle it so generation Y's particularly in Z's have had to live through people taking this book apart they've got a PhD in how to shred the Bible right and by the time they finish with it they, you don't trust it it doesn't mean anything it's rubbish it's not true And that can contaminate our thinking. And I'm trying to bust through some strongholds and some lies today that says we cannot allow postmodernism and academia to rob us of our ability to engage with this book and understand that God meant us to have it. And it's a crucial part of our faith walk and our life. So let me just say what the Bible isn't before I try and give you some explanation for what I think it is. Okay. It's not an instruction manual. It doesn't give you the answer to every problem that you face. I've got a dripping tap at home. It's driving me potty. But I won't find anywhere in the Bible the answer to that problem. Okay? It's not a rule book that tells you what to do in every single situation. What should I do here There must be a Bible verse for it somewhere. Don't play that game. Do not play that game. It's not a theology textbook reserved for the professional Christian. Right, that Mark, he loves theology. So I'll just outsource my theology to him. And he can just have a party with the Bible and then just tell me what I need to believe. Mm -mm. It's not 
intended just to be for the professional theologian. Do you know, some people gave their lives to get the book, the Bible, out of the hands of the professionals and into people like you and me. Cost them their life to do that. So, what is the Bible? Well, and this isn't definitive, but the Bible is one way in which God has chosen to reveal himself to you and me. The theologians call that special revelation. God took the initiative and decided that he was going to ensure that the Bible was created. It is a written record of what God has said and what God continues to say. It's complete, it's sufficient, and it's understandable. In simple terms, the Bible is the inspired word of God. And if I was going to anchor you to anything in response to postmodernism and academics, it would be 2 Timothy 3.16, one of my favorite verses, which says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good way. Now, the word inspired actually is the Greek word theonoustos. It actually means God-breathed. So the NIV gets it right, because when the NIV translates 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, not inspired, it says God-breathed. Why do I think that's so important? It's so important for this reason, because Jesus said, Matthew 4.4, man shall not live, you and I shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Now, the prophetic community will elevate prophecy on the basis of that. But actually, I want to elevate scripture on the basis of 2 Timothy 3.16, because what 2 Timothy 3.16 is actually saying is, The Bible was God-breathed. It came out of his mouth. So when Jesus is saying, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, I believe it's legitimate and right and important that we include scripture in that. In fact, we should go far as to say, any prophetic word we receive needs to be submitted to the written word of God. 2 Peter 1.20 verse 21 says this, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about because of somebody's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1 verse 19 says this, We have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. You will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. So the Bible isn't an instruction manual. It isn't a rule book and it isn't a professional textbook. So what is it? Well, as I've already said, I believe it's one. It's our story. There is a big story and you and I get to be a part of that. So it's a family history. It's our family history. It's full of people who were really flawed, just like you and me. And it tells us about how God interacted with them. In many ways, for our benefit, 
Romans 15.4 says that everything that was written in the past was written to help us so we can get to learn from other people's mistakes. But above all else, uh, this is where I want to land, I believe that the Bible is a letter from home that invites us into intimacy with the one who wrote it. It's beautiful. If you could see it in that way, it's a letter from home that invites us into intimacy with the one who wrote it. You know what the guys on the Emmaus Road, they were lost, they were disappointed because Jesus had died and all their hopes had gone. And they didn't recognize Jesus. And then in Luke 24, 27, it says this, Jesus, beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, explained to them what was said about himself. That's a phenomenal Bible study right there, okay? Jesus took them on a journey through the scriptures, explaining to them why all that was in the scripture was about him. And then in John 5, you remember, he he challenges the Pharisees because the Pharisees have got this thing and they're just beating people over with their heads with it because it's a rule book. Boom. You did something wrong. Boom. Right? And Jesus says to them in John 5.37, you read this book, you Pharisees, the ones who want to use it as a rule book, but you don't understand that these scriptures are all about me. You see, the Pharisees refused to see their scripture as an invitation to intimacy. They just understood it to be a rule book and they just beat people over the head with it. And Jesus was trying to help them lovingly understand that actually it's an invitation to intimacy. The Jesus that you and I came to know when we got saved is the Jesus that is described to us in this book. And this book cannot be understood properly without being in relationship with him. There is no other Jesus than the Jesus revealed to us in this book. The written word of God, the Bible, should never be separate from the incarnate word of God, who is Jesus. So when we root ourselves in scripture, we are rooting ourselves in him. Outside of relationship with Jesus, which Bill Johnson says, who is perfect theology, Jesus that is perfect theology, you can make this book say anything you want it to, and people do it all the time. That's why Harper Lee was right. Sometimes in the hands of a man, this book is more dangerous than a bottle of whiskey because it can be used and abused outside of relationship with him. Ultimately, why should we read it? Because it's all about him. It's his story and it's our story. Colossians 3.16, and I'm going to come into land with this, says this in the Amplified. Let the word of Christ have its home within you dwelling in your heart and mind, permeating every aspect of your being as you teach and admonish and train one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. You've heard me say before that 
Gordon Fee says that Ephesians 5.18 is the ultimate Pauline imperative. It means if Paul was going to tell you to do one thing, he'd tell you to do this, be filled with the Spirit. But over the years, I've come to see that in Colossians 3.16, we have Paul giving us really the left and then the right. Okay? Because I think Paul would say be filled with Holy Spirit. But I think the next step is let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. Be filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. It's never meant to be Holy Spirit or Bible. Maturity says it's... Got it. Be filled. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. The point of heaven to earth and supernatural connection in your life is mine is when Holy Spirit and incarnate word and written word collide. Talk about nuclear fission, fusion, whatever that is. At the point those things connect, boom. Amazing. Amazing. Whatever impossibility, whatever circumstance, whatever situation, whatever miracle you need. Take a look at Genesis 1. The Holy Spirit was hoovering Doing the housework. Oh, have I got too many O's in that? <clears throat> That's all great. Holy Spirit's hoovering. Brilliant. We'd still be there now if something else didn't happen. And then God said, Theonoustos. He spoke. And in the cauldron of Holy Spirit hovering over a situation, the word came. Boom. Order out of chaos, light out of darkness, awesome. Which is why it's so important that we know what the Bible says. I wrote in the front of this book when I was 18. I've just remembered this. Something that I was just about to say, but I'll quote it to you from the front of my Bible. My confidence, I was an 18 year old when I wrote this. In green ink. (laughs) My confidence and my authority is in this. I am only going to say what he has already said. My confidence and authority is in this. I am only going to say what he has already said. It's the power of agreement. When you're in an impossible situation and you don't know what to say, find out what he's already said and then just say it again. Yeah, But if you don't know what he said, then you're not just wordless, you're clueless. Right? Step into a situation and say, what has God already said about this? And if the word of Christ is dwelling richly in you, you don't even actually need your Bible at that point. Because what you're going to do now is you're going to go and draw it out of your heart. Because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you encounter an impossibility and you're thinking, oh, panic, I need my Bible. Where's Google? It's meant to be here. It's meant to be here because when we're rooted in Scripture, our roots go down into what he's already said and we draw up from this well of what he has already said. So how do you get rooted? Sounds better than get knotted, doesn't it? How do you get rooted? 
There was a series once I was a part of which was called Get Knotted. It just didn't sound good, really, did it? Um, it was about community. <laughs> Have I put you all to sleep or something? Anyway, right. Keys to getting rooted. Read it. Oh, simple, but so true. In whatever form factor you jolly well choose. I'm not fussy, but read it. Don't let anybody else just tell you what it says without reading it for yourself. Meditate on it. Anybody here not meditate? Anybody here worry? Right, okay, you can meditate. Because that's all worry is. Worry is meditating on the wrong thing. So when you worry, just go, I do this a lot. Sometimes I wake up at night and start worrying. So I insert a Bible verse. Because I thought, I'm I'm meditating, but just on the wrong thing. I need to think about something else. Stick a Bible verse in it. Talk about it. Talk about it to Holy Spirit. Say, Holy Spirit, what does this mean? I haven't got a clue. And if you're not sure, ask somebody else around you and ask them to have a conversation with you about what it means. That's a beautiful way to journey together. Philip did it, didn't he, with the guy reading the Bible. He saw this guy. He said, I'm reading. I don't know what it means. Philip said, I'll tell you what it means. And then baptized him because they had a conversation about the Bible. Speak it out. Get used to declaring it. Memorize it if you really want to be radical. And then whatever else we do, let's put it into practice. So I think to be rooted in scripture means to read it, to meditate on it, to talk about it, to speak it out, and to put it into practice. And that's me done. Covered a lot of ground there, as always. Can I just pray for us all? As a Generation X, to you baby boomers out there, and to you Generation Y millennials, and to you post-millennials, I'm not jealous or anything. I wonder what happens after Z. Do we go back to the beginning again? I don't know. If you can and you feel comfortable, put your hand on your heart. I'm going to ask Holy Spirit to set you on fire for the Bible. Holy Spirit, I've said a lot. Just strip away anything that didn't need to be said and just help us all to remember what it is that you've said to us today about this wonderful and beautiful book. Holy Spirit, I ask you now just to start to move in the hearts of our church family, our guests today and set their heart on fire with desire for the Bible. Holy Spirit, just breathe on the embers of our heart in relation to the Bible. Whatever has dampened them down, God. Holy Spirit, just breathe on the embers of our heart with desire for your word. Give us an insatiable hunger and thirst to read your word, to meditate on it, to talk about it to speak it out and to put it into practice. And I pray, Father, that you would give every one of us an opportunity this week to step into an impossible situation and take the opportunity to speak into that situation what you have already said. To send a missile of your spoken word off the back of the written word, into a situation and see it transformed. Whether that be in the area of finance, of healing, of fruitfulness, 
breakthrough in marriage and family, God. Send your word. Send your word, God. Seal it up, Holy Spirit. Amen.